Well, let's turn and worship our Lord and God through the hearing of His Word preached. I can't help but marvel at God's providence this morning. We are simply picking up in the book of Titus where we left off, Titus chapter 3. Uh, but it couldn't have been planned any better. Uh, as Pastor Rob mentioned ago on Friday, the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade. This is something that Christians have longed for and prayed for for many decades. And now this morning with Titus 3, we come to a passage that instructs us on our duties and relationship with civil authorities. So maybe think of this passage in the terms of what if the Supreme Court had decided differently? Regardless, in the bigger picture of things, in chapter 1, we have seen our doctrine and duty in the church, in leadership. In Titus chapter 2, we've seen our doctrine and duty in the home and in relation to other Christians. And now we see in chapter 3 our doctrine and duty in relation to the outside world, civil authorities and unbelievers in general. And the question is, how are Christians to live in the midst of an evil, wicked generation? Titus 3, 1-8 is our passage. Brethren, this is God's Word. Let's receive it in faith. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Amen. Let's pray again. Our God and our Father, we pray this morning that you would remind us of our duty, that you would strengthen us to do your will, that in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would enable and equip our hearts to model the gospel and how we relate to the outside world. We pray that you would feed us with the bread of life. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, so far in Titus, we've seen some tremendous things about the blessings that we enjoy in the gospel. Because God, our Savior, in the Lord Jesus Christ, has given Himself for us, as we saw last week in chapter 2, we have the hope of eternal life. Eternal life that was promised before the ages began. And now has been revealed in Christ, His Son. 
We also have redemption from all of our law-breaking, purification in His blood, by His blood. And we enjoy this special status as God's people, God's chosen possession, His special beloved people and possession. But while God's grace has appeared already in one sense, the reality is the Christian life. The Christian life is still one of waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, although we are citizens of God's kingdom, although although we are children in the household of God, right now we continue to live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. When God called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son, He did not remove us from this present world. The Christian life is still one of waiting and looking and hoping for the consummation of our redemption. Now, I say this to you, I don't think it's anything new to you. You know this. You experience this every day. But I want to remind you of this so that you don't look out at the evil world around us as if something strange were happening. We live in a fallen world. This world has not yet been redeemed and restored. We are still awaiting the promised consummation. We must not be deluded to expect heaven on earth here and now. This is particularly important when we consider that Crete, the island of Crete, was a notoriously wicked place. The commission then that is given to Titus, um, the commission that is given to the Cretan Christians, the life that they are called to lead, um, was not something that was easy. And of course, I think we can say in the same respect here in America, we can say something similar. We live in a wicked and perverse generation. We are surrounded by evil and wickedness all around us. We are ruled in part, some of our governmental leaders, some of our civil leaders are ungodly and wicked men and women. The question then is, how do we respond to this? How do we conduct ourselves in the midst of this depraved culture? How do we oppose the evil around us? How do we fight it? How do we fulfill the Great Commission in light of it? That's what Paul turns to here in chapter 3. In the face of a wicked society, in the face of a culture that is a, a clear threat to the church, I do want you to note, what we find here is not an escapist position. Christians are not called to separate ourselves from society, to try to escape its influence, to hide away safely in a monastery or on a family farm. We are commissioned to go into the world, not to run away from it. We don't find a doctrine of escapism here, but neither do we find, maybe the opposite, a doctrine of the crusade. Christians are not to take up arms against the wicked, either. Jesus himself said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would be fighting. We don't find an escapist position. We also don't find the crusader's position, waging war against the wicked. We also don't find, I would argue, a doctrine of transformation either, where we fight the culture wars in order to 
to stem the tide of wickedness in a temporal sense. That is, to legislate or to enforce morality on a superficial level. An attempt to instill the Bible into legislation. We don't find that, a word of that mentioned in the New Testament. I'd argue we don't find also a doctrine of political action either, as if the church is to pursue political agendas through advancing legislation or protesting. And yet also, we also don't find a doctrine of compromise either, where we simply adapt to the culture, throw up our hands and say, well, nothing's ever going to change, so I'm just going to love people where they're at. No, in contrast to these approaches, what we find here is that instead of resisting evil authorities in government, we're told to be submissive to them and to love them. Instead of deserting the culture and retreating to a position of safety, to guard our children maybe, we are told to be ready, to stand ready for every good work. Instead of angrily condemning the culture and calling down God's judgment upon sinners, turn or burn, Paul says, speak evil of no one. Be gentle and courteous toward all, even toward those who hate God and His truth. And why are we commanded to do such things? Because grace trains us in this way. Because grace, verse 3, we too were just like them, but for the grace of God. Brethren, today I want you to see what godliness looks like in relation to the wicked and unbelieving world around us. Godliness is God-likeness. Its focus is not on wicked people and what they may or may not deserve. Its focus is not on circumstances whether evil is winning or or losing, godliness is is focused upon God, on who He is and what He's done for us in the Gospel. And if the the goodness and, and loving kindness of God was shown to us while we were still His enemies, we must show goodness and loving kindness toward others even while they still remain God's enemies. That's what godliness looks like. That's what we're called to do and how we're called to live in the midst of an evil society. Three things then from our passage today. We'll uh, kind of just categorize things under three headings. uh, Cultural imperative, command for obedience, and case for obedience. Excuse me, I messed that up. Cultural imperative, case for behavior. Uh, I messed it up again. Cultural cultural imperative, command for behavior, in case for obedience. Thank you, Mark. You're helping me back there. Let's begin. Let's think about the cultural imperative here. That's what I get for alliteration. I I confuse myself. The one time I try to alliterate. Okay. Cultural imperative. Let's think about the cultural imperative. And and what I mean by the cultural imperative is um, we need to understand the context in Crete and how important it is that Christians respond appropriately um, to it. I said a moment ago, the culture in Crete was very similar to ours here in America. I would argue it was even worse. 
Uh, you think abortion was prevalent now? It was just as prevalent back then. You think homosexuality is prevalent now? Well, back then it was more pedophilia and it was common and it was also a very noble rite of passage for every upstanding man in Greek culture, Roman culture. Um, if you think that public policy and, and, and legislation is corrupt nowadays, uh, one historian of Crete wrote that it is almost impossible to find public uh, personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Social injustice reigned in Crete. Personal conduct is the culture, society. It's impossible to find it more treacherous he said. Public policy, the government, the law, the order, the legislation, the civil authorities, it's impossible to find it more unjust in the ancient world than in Crete. So both law and order, both society and government, were in a state of absolute moral decadence. This is clearly one of Paul's concerns as he writes this letter. He saw these things as a threat to the church. That's why he has those very stark words back in chapter 1 that Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. He saw that as a threat. He saw it as influencing the church. And so it was imperative that Titus respond to that threat accordingly. But if we look at this book, how is Titus called to respond? How's the pastor called to respond to an evil culture? Well, the most important and the most central way that he was to combat that evil culture was by preaching sound doctrine. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But it's sound doctrine that leads to sound living. That's why Paul, uh, Titus was to organize the church with godly leaders. He was to instruct the people to love and serve and disciple one another toward godly living, chapter 2. And that's why he was to teach and preach sound doctrine, to refute those who contradict, to silence false teachers, to rebuke the wayward and sinful, and to let no one disregard him in this work. This encompasses a pastor's entire responsibility and duty in the face of an evil society. We don't find the New Testament instructing pastors to organize voting campaigns or to exert political pressure on local authorities or to protest or boycott or demonstrate peaceful resistance. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm not saying that we might choose to do some of those things as citizens. But the most important and the most central and the most effective way for a minister to impact the culture around them is by leading and discipling and teaching the church with sound doctrine. Just you being here this morning and the Word of God being preached has an effect on culture that you cannot categorize. Tremendous impact on culture. But if that's the cultural imperative for the pastor, what then is the duty for all Christians? Well, I want to remind you of what we looked at two weeks ago in uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, where how in all of those instructions within the church, we saw a very missional mindset, for lack of a better term. Remember, older women are commanded to teach the younger women. Why? Chapter 2, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Younger men and Titus himself are to be a model of good works and sound speech. Why? Chapter 2, verse 8. So that in everything they may adorn, excuse me, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And slaves are to obey their masters and honor them. Why? Verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is aware of the evil around them. He is aware that people are watching. And he is concerned about what unbelievers think about the church. So it is imperative that the church understand their cultural context so as to respond accordingly with godly living. Simply put, the cultural imperative is gospel preaching and godly living. Good news and good works. At other times, sure, we may seek to influence uh, the culture and respond to the evil around us, but what I want you to see is this is most fundamental, this is most central, and this is most, uh, most important. But we need to get a little more specific. What does this look like? And so let's consider, secondly, the command for behavior. Command for behavior. Uh, look again at verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. I would wager that this is not the most popular command in the New Testament. Remind them. Remind them. Them is the church, the unbelievers. And just by the notion of remind them, it's clear that not only this is something that they've heard before, it's not an isolated command in the New Testament. We heard it earlier from 1 Peter. But it also shows us, reminds us of how difficult it is. You know, history shows that the Cretans were fuming under Roman rule at this time. It was a political and insurrectionist hotbed. So Paul says, remind them. He knows the context there, so remind them. Perhaps they were caught up, some of the Christians, in anti-government movements. Remind them. Perhaps they thought, well, I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't have to, um, um, I have no responsibility to honor or obey a wicked pagan earthly ruler. Remind them. Well, you know, the government's corrupt. They're evil. They're pagan. They're, 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 they're wicked men. They have wicked policies. They're only out to, to fill their own pockets. So I shouldn't really submit to them. They're, they're not doing their duty. Remind them. Maybe they were just normal, sinful human beings like us all who struggle to submit to authority. Think about it if you're, if you're a parent here. Think about how many times you have to remind your children of their duty to obey you. Think how many years it takes to teach them that. Some of them never learn, sadly. <laughs> you know, that's a natural relationship. How much more so if we're not submitting to a loving and caring father, but to a wicked and perverse ruler. 
How much more difficult it is. How much longer it takes for us to learn that. That's what's going on here. Paul, with these words, he's acknowledging that this submission is not natural. It's not easy. It's not desirable. But it's absolutely necessary for the cause of the gospel. The historical context here, again, Crete was ruled by the Roman Empire. Remember that Rome advocated the imperial cult of Rome as the state religion. You couldn't do anything in the public square unless you made an offering to the gods, which is why so many Christians were persecuted. But also remember that the ultimate ruler here, and in, for example, Rome, uh, Rome, Romans 13, where we're uh, told the very same thing, that would have been Caesar, and Caesar con- uh, considered himself a god. There was exorbitant taxation in this as well. If you don't like our tax situation now, think if taxes were 60% or more, and you're paying them to this Caesar who thought that you were giving him offerings because paying him dues for being a god. That's why Jesus was tested with that question. You're going to pay taxes to this pagan, to this false god? Well, that's going to compromise the gospel. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar. Peter, 1 Peter 2, pay to them everything you owe to them. Be submissive to those whom God has appointed to that office. It's important here to understand what submissiveness is. Submissiveness to the Christian is not just an external behavior. It is an attitude. It is a um, general conduct, a posture of the heart flowing from within. This is not bitter, begrudging necessity of the will. This is not submissive because you're afraid of going to jail. This is not gritted teeth submission because you don't want to. This is not submissiveness because you have no other choice. This is submissiveness based not upon the person, not upon the context, but upon the office that they hold and the fact that God is the one who's put them there. It's noteworthy that this command to be submissive is the exact same command, exact same word that is given in the home when wives are told to be submissive to their husbands. The wife is not to submit to the husband because he deserves it, because he's earned it, because he's lived up to it, because he's without fault. She knows that's not the case. She does so simply because that's God's order in the home, whether he's a believer or an unbeliever. And the same thing is true here. We submit because of who God is, not because of who they are. In fact, I think it's hypocritical how often we see Christians preach long and hard about submissiveness in the home. And we see male domination in the home. And yet those husbands themselves turn around and are known for being anti-government and they refuse to honor and submit to the authorities out in the world. That's hypocrisy. That's men who don't care about God's order in the home. They care about having power. And they don't want anyone telling them what to do. And we are to avoid such people. 
A husband should never expect his wife to submit to him if he won't submit to the governing authorities. As Vody Bachman says, if, if you can't say amen, at least say ouch. Now, of course, it does need to be said that whether we're talking about the home or the civil realm, this is not blind, mindless obedience to everything they say. There are limits to headship in the home. There are limits to authority of government. We don't have time to get into all of those today. I'm just saying this passage and the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that this is the general pattern and tenor of the Christian life. Christians are not to be known as rebellious to government or as insurrectionists or as hostile to them or as resistant to them. We are to give no reason for people to think of us as anti-government or as pushing some sort of political agenda. And it doesn't matter whether they deserve it or not, whether their rule is good or not, whether they are honorable or not, whether they are sane and in the right mind or not, whether they are evil or not. We're called to submit because God has commanded it and because God has placed them in authority over us. That's important because it's through our submission to them that we demonstrate to all the world that we are submissive to God. You can't miss that point. It's through our submission to them that we demonstrate that we are submissive to God. And what could be more important in the eyes of a watching world for Christians to demonstrate that we live lives in submission to God? That is the Christian life. That's what it means to die to yourself and take up your cross. Let's get more specific. What does submissiveness look like? Well, if you want to know what that looks like, read the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Because that's what Paul details and expounds on. He doesn't just throw submissiveness out there and let you define it. You can determine what it looks like. You can determine when to do it. No, he goes into detail about what it looks like. Here, being submissive is to be obedient. When they instruct within the realm of their God-given authority, when they instruct in things that do not cause us to sin, we are to obey, even if we don't like it, even if it's inconvenient, even if we disagree with it. Then he says, submissiveness is to be ready for every good work. This is a sincere readiness to do good to them. We are to actively seek their well-being. We are to actively seek to do good to those who hate God and His Word. It's the picture here is God has left us standing at a post. And He's given us a commission. And we are to keep eager watch. To, read, to, be, to, to be eager to jump into action. To perform every good work when given the opportunity. Then he says here, this submissiveness is that we speak evil of no one. This prohibits slander or cursing, speaking of them with contempt. Now, I'm going to be careful when I say this. There's no place in the Christian life to curse or speak evil of our civil authorities. As much as we disagree with them, and I might agree with you on that. You know, this is a very popular euphemism used to refer to President Joe Biden. It's out of place for a Christian. 
It is disobedience to this, to this passage. It's sin against God. Disagree with our president? Yes. Contradict his words and opinions? Yes. Express a, an appropriate level of anger and disgust? Yes. But don't curse him. Don't disrespect him in his office. We are under the command of God in this. Speak evil of no one. No one doesn't leave anybody out. In fact, Paul broadens this. It it means our civil authorities in the direct context, but it it means everyone as well. There's, There's nobody that we are allowed to speak evil of as Christians. No matter how evil or wicked they may be. What does it mean to be submissive? Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. We are to be fair, reasonable, level-headed, patient, giving them the benefit of the doubt, assuming the best of people rather than automatically assuming the worst, which is our natural tendency. Show perfect courtesy. This means that we're not preoccupied with ourself and with our rights. We're not puffed up with our own importance and opinions. We defer to others. We show them that courtesy. Now again, this, this doesn't mean that we can't be honest and blunt at times. Uh, remember again, chapter 1, Paul's, Paul said of the Cretans, they're liars, they're evil beasts, they're, they're lazy gluttons. Um, don't think that he's being hypocritical here with this, with, with you know, contradicting himself now when he says, show perfect courtesy toward them. Um, because sometimes it's necessary to be blunt. Sometimes it, it, we must not beat around the bush. Sometimes strong words are appropriate. Uh, one example I thought of is in our culture, it is highly insulting, it's a cultural faux pas, to call a transgender woman a biological male. Um, and I would argue we must not do that flippantly or crudely or as an insult or abusively with our speech when we say, no, that's really a man. But there is a proper time and a place where a love for the truth demands that we are honest, even if it offends people, even if we are criticized as being insensitive. We must speak the truth, but we must speak the truth in love. Our speech must be seasoned with salt. That means seeking to edify, seeking to preserve, not tear down and insult and, and, and just stand upon our rights. Brethren, I want you to see in this, submissiveness is not doormat Christianity. It's not just letting everyone just walk all over us. This is godly virtue in action. It's self-control in action. It's recognition of God's legitimate rule and order in society. And, and it's demonstration that we live as those who are under authority. We don't live life on our own terms. Whether it's children obeying parents, whether it's wives submitting to husbands, slaves obeying masters, congregants obeying their elders... Or all of us, as we submit to civil authorities, we demonstrate before the world that we submit to and follow God as our authority and that we don't rule our own lives. 
course, none of this is easy. Remind them. It's not easy. They need regular reminders. Especially when the leaders in government are ungodly. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there. Because third and finally, we find the power in the gospel to live such a life. Cultural imperative, command for behavior. Now the case for obedience. The case for obedience. I hate to disappoint you if you're taking notes. I'm about to wreck your outline. But uh, I just find it easy to, to summarize this point under four other points. Uh, it's easier to remember that way. Uh, four R's. Recall who we are. Remember who God is. Reflect upon His sovereign grace. And rejoice in our future inheritance. This is the case for obedience. How do we live this way? Why do we live this way? Because first we recall who we were in our former state. We recall, verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We are to treat the wicked with love and kindness because we were once just like them. All of us were. Paul says we, not just you. He was a wicked man too once. We were all, no matter how early in life we were converted, we were all once this description right here. Evil and wicked people. And, and Paul paints this picture here, not just by saying, you know, nobody's perfect. Show grace because nobody's perfect. I mean, think about what he, what he says here. Foolish. That means without spiritual understanding. Uh, disobedient means hostile to authority. Uh, to our parental authority, to our governmental authority, to God's authority. We were once disobedient. Led astray, it means we were deceived. We were led by the hand, by the idols, into further and further sin and misery. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, we were ruled once with passions, with lusts, with desires for cravings of this world. Malice indicates an evil habit of mind. We were mean-spirited and wished evil upon people we didn't like. Envy is resenting and coveting good things that other people have. We're just not happy or we cannot bear when other people prosper. They get the job that we wanted. They get the girl that we wanted. They have the family that we wanted. They have the, drive the car that we wanted. They have the body we wanted. We're envious. We're not happy. We can't bear with other people having things that we want. We were foolish within. We were deceived without. Our thinking was warped by sin. And our behavior was enslaved by sin. That's who we once were outside of Christ. And Paul details this so that we kind of feel that. We feel it in the, in the depths of our bones. We, we become acquainted with it, with our own sinfulness, so that we will be properly humbled. That's the humility necessary to love people in this way. But thankfully, we see a hint here that we were once something, but now we're something else. No longer. We remember, secondly, who God is. 
We were once these things, verse 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. It's a stark contrast here. Man's foolishness, disobedience, ignorance, passions, hate, lust, malice, envy. And on the other hand, God. Loving, kindness, goodness. It's against the backdrop of this black, filthy, human, gross darkness that the beautiful, glorious character, the character of God shines like a diamond. The point is this, so that we will imitate our God. He saved us while we were enemies. There's nothing about us that was lovable in our former state. Romans 5.8, we were once sinners enslaved to sin and still enemies of God when Christ died for us. It was solely His gracious disposition toward us that saved us. So, so it's this, it's, it's recalling who we are and remembering who God is that enables us to put off the old man and put, off, put on the new man walking as he walked so that we will treat enemies of God how he has treated us when we were enemies of God. That's what God-likeness, godliness is. Thirdly, we reflect upon his sovereign grace. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It is while we were sinners that God appeared. That God our Savior appeared. Uh, This harkens back, remember last week in chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. That was a reference to Jesus' appearance on human history. But this appearing refers to Christ appearing in conversion to us specifically. It's at our lowest point that He appeared and He saved us. We were foolish and deceived and and, and enslaved, but then He showed up and saved us. The battle was lost. The war was over. And then suddenly with a, with a crack of lightning and a peal of thunder, God appeared and rescued us. It was God and His grace that invaded our lives. It was God and His mercy that came to us when we could not go to Him. And that's what changed us from being foolish and deceived and enslaved to things that are more powerful than us to now being saved and redeemed and purified. Not because of anything in us, but because of everything in Him. That's why Paul uses a strong language here. Not because. It's a, in, the, in the original Greek, it's very emphatic. Not because. He saved us not because of our works. Not because of our righteousness. Not because of our goodness. Not because of our obedience. Not because of our choice. Or because of our free will in choosing to receive Him. He saved us not because of anything in us, but because of only because of His own mercy. Our salvation is His choice. It is His will. It is His work toward us. It is 100% the work of another. 
And so the, the, the implication, again, it's clear. If God did not wait until we look to Him to save us, we must not wait for people to become Christians or to show some sort of inclination toward good before we show them kindness and goodness, gentleness and love. And brethren, let me just say as a side note here, I know the issue of Calvinism and predestination and election. Those things are hard to understand. Some, they're very controversial. Uh, but know that these, these, this discussion, these doctrines are not just speculative. They're not just abstract. They're not just, well, how many angels can dance on the pin of a needle? What we believe about God's grace and salvation has a direct impact on how we will treat unbelievers who don't know God. It's only when we understand that it's solely by His grace and that alone, His sovereign grace, will we then be enabled to love others as He has loved us. The last R, rejoice in our future inheritance. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A beautiful Trinitarian work of God is on display here. God, our Savior, saved us by the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth, an allusion to baptism. Poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, Father, Spirit, and Son, right here. What a beautiful symmetry. What a beautiful harmony of our triune God in salvation. And this opens up to us as well, not only the threefold person of God as the one God, but also the past, present, and future aspect of our salvation. In the past, we were foolish. In the present, God's uh, um, kindness appeared to us and we are justified right now and declared righteous so that in the future, we rejoice in that future inheritance. Being justified. The, the verdict of the final day has been declared to us already in Christ so that we don't have to wonder what the final judgment will hold. And we can look forward to it with the full assurance of joy. We have the Spirit, the age, uh, the Spirit of the new creation. We are being made new ourselves, um, being made ready for that new creation. And so this certain and sure hope spurs us on to obedience here and now. Let us be aware of having an over-realized eschatology where we expect heaven on earth now. Let us see with this future inheritance that this is the age of submission and humility and quiet obedience. If you want an example of that, look to our Lord. Did He pull out the sword? Did He wage war against governing authorities? Did He resist evildoers? We are called to walk in the same submissiveness and humility and quiet obedience, even unto death, that our Lord walked into. But we do this knowing that new creation awaits just on the horizon. So we wait patiently while rejoicing, knowing that He's about to fulfill everything He's promised. This is the case for obedience. This is the doctrinal foundation that fuels our love for our neighbor. And this is why in verse 8, Paul concludes by saying, these things are trustworthy. Excuse me, the saying is trustworthy. 
And I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. When he says this saying is trustworthy, he's pointing out verses 4 through 7. It's what, the best of our knowledge, it was an ancient creed in the early church. I believe it was the baptismal confession of the early church. When someone was baptized, they would recite verses 4 through 7, which is why we're going to recite it here in a few minutes at the end of our service. But insist on these things. He's saying, Titus, don't be ashamed of them. Urge the people to, to receive this gospel and to do these good works. This isn't optional because it's profitable for all people. Sinners outside and inside the church These things are profitable. Combating the culture outside and combating the sin inside the church, these things are profitable. Good news and good works is how we are called to live in the midst of an evil and wicked generation. Well, brethren, I just want to leave you with one thing in conclusion. I want you to think back to what we saw last week. Verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared that trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. Last week I emphasized that it's not the law that trains us to do such things. And that's really on display here because a law-centered approach in our relation to unbelievers will center upon what they deserve. As soon as we see they don't deserve our good treatment, our love for them will falter. As soon as we think that the law is not being obeyed in their legislation and in their personhood, our obedience and love for them will falter. But grace trains us differently. Grace gives us a new disposition and a new perspective. We love them not because they deserve it, but because that's how God treated His enemies. That's how God has treated us While we often run from our enemies, God runs toward His enemies. While while we often hide from the wicked, as we often care nothing more than just to shout down judgment and say, say, you know, return, uh, turn to Christ or you will burn. God is patient and loving kindness and gracious and He does good to them. Giving them what they never deserve. And this, brethren... Is how we are called to live. And this is also how the church will fulfill its mission, the advancement of Christ's kingdom here on earth. Don't be fooled into thinking that we need to take up worldly weapons of power and strength and might and anger and pressure and and financial pressure and political pressure. The most potent weapon that we can wield is the gospel. The gospel is the insurrection of the saints against tyranny. The gospel is what conquers kingdoms and overthrows tyrants. It's this warfare of words, casting down every argument that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. The war of words the gates of hell will never prevail against. Brethren, let's know the gospel. Let's live the gospel. Because that's how God has called us, what He has called us to in the midst of a wicked and evil generation. Well, may God give us 
an outpouring of his grace to receive these things for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray.